0: mark you know what that is it sounds very familiar i've heard it on a
1: podcast <laughs> right yeah oh wow okay it yours? <laughs> i think somebody was singing she has a very very good voice You know, you wrote that for me. Yeah, oh, well, you know, you tell me what to write, so it's (laughs) your best client I've had.
0: And the the lowest paying client ever. Well worth it. That's because, you know, you're one of my friends in high places, but you're also my brother in a high place.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: Mark Blatt is composer, author. We've heard of Tiger King. Maybe he'd be Jingle King. Um, Jungle King, you were in Nicaragua. There's a lot to you. Well, I've had a lot of time to do all those
1: things, believe
0: me. He's my older brother. We're not by blood, though, but your mom married my dad.
1: And I love you and your brother and sister.
0: Thank you, Mark, and back at you all. Thank you. And so I have a sister named Lisa and a stepsister named Lisa, and, and my dad was David, and your brother is David. That's so right. we were all meant to be. Hey, it's E.B. Moss, and this is episode four of It's Quite a Living. Now, you know that this is about my conversations with friends in high places, but I'm going to push the envelope and include mm, kind of family. Well, Mark Blatt is my stepbrother, and he also happens to be a Grammy nominee, the winner of an ASCAP award, of a Lifetime Achievement Award, of a bunch of Clio awards, and he's an author, too. So he definitely qualifies as a friend in high places, even if he is sort of blood. Mark Blatt, as I I mentioned earlier, is a composer, and he's an author. And Mark, you've been around the music business a long time. And and when I first saw you on our little Squadcast platform here, I get to see you. You were in bed. I said, but Mark, it's like, you know, three in the afternoon that we're recording this. And you said...
1: I said, we keep musicians' hours we don't go to bed until usually two to four. It really depends. Yeah. And we do it. We do it no matter where we are, no matter what time zone we're in. China, (laughs) Africa, we don't get up until late. You
0: got to keep up the the perception of like being this cool musician, which you are.
1: I'm not as cool as my wife, but yes, we we try to keep it up. My wife, is a producer. Jean Luck is my wife and uh she's a music producer. So it works, you know, it works.
0: Yeah. And she's sleeping now. So
1: we couldn't mm-hmm. get her on mic, but mm-hmm. we're gonna talk about her.
0: I just wanna talk about your life. When I met you, like we said, you you had hair.
1: Mm-hmm, I had um, hair. I had a mustache. I look like a mustache. porn. I look like a porn star. Come on. What are you talking about? <laughs> But I had to look first.
0: And that was um that was in the eighties, man. Mm-hmm. So what were you doing then? Of course, you were a grown up when I met you, right. so I didn't know you as you were learning music and, and right. that whole things. So how did music come into your life?
1: Well, um my dad played the clarinet and when I was five years old, he gave me one of those little recorders. Uh-huh. And I loved it. And I played clarinet in a band growing up. And then when I was around 10, my grandfather took me to see The Music Man on Broadway, starring Eddie Albert. And uh, I was like, wow, I wanna write music. I think I can do it. When I was around 11, I started writing songs and um, taught myself how to play the guitar. And then um, the House of the Rising Sun came on the radio. I think I was 13. And I have a neighbor who I'm still in touch with. His name's Steve Marcus. He was making records at 16. He played a saxophone in a band. And so he came over, we had a little piano and he showed me how to play House of the Rising Sun. And I learned it in every key. By the time I was, the summer was over three, four months, I could play the piano because I'd learned the House of the Rising Sun in every single key. So the piano was my friend. I was familiar with it. And then in my senior year in high school, I played in a band called Floozy, okay? At that time, we would make tapes. There were reel-to-reel tape recorders and we would make tapes. And I would take the train from Mount Kisco into Manhattan with tons of dimes in my pocket. (laughs) <laughs> and they had something called the Yellow Pages.: Oh, yes. right. in Grand Central Station, so they had these very nice phone booths, and I looked up music publishers. So it was, I'd get there like around 12 from Mount Kisco, New York. I was 18. No, I was 17. I, I, I didn't know anybody in the business. I didn't know your dad. that was before Dave, who was in radio. And I would start calling these publishers and I'd say, hi, I'm Mark Blatt. I have these songs. (laughs) Would you like to listen to them? And let's say I call 10, right? One person would say, okay, I'm in Grand Central Station. I have my tapes and I'm going to see a publisher, right? This happened many, many times. At that time, I think they were thinking, oh, he's an 18-year-old kid. They were thinking, "Carol King, Neil Sedaka, whatever. Who knows? I come in and I, this is, this, this happened, I would say at least six times that I can remember. I'm just sitting there in this publisher's office. He says, let me hear the songs, kid. You know, cause that's how they talked back then. Let me hear <laughs> the songs, kid. Show me what you got. So then I would, I would give him my tape, right? And he put it on and one minute into the song, he'd go, this sucks. <laughs> I said, well, well there's, an, there's four songs here, you know, go to the next song minute into he goes. Oh, my God. Fourth, third one, fourth one, same thing, right? So I'd be like, oh, my God, here I am in New York. I better think of something. Oh, well, sir, can you play me something that you like?
0: Wow, smart.
1: I was thinking like, you know, and they would play me stuff that they'd like. And then I'd I'd say to the guy, I'm going to come back in three months. And hopefully, you know, I'll have something for you, you know? So three months would come by, I'd go in again. He listened to it. He goes, goes the whole minute goes, Oh, that sucks. But, but there are three or four seconds there that are really good. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I went from zero to four seconds. (laughs) Right. I did this until I was 28. By the time I was 28, I go in a publishing company and they go, sounds like a hit. Everything I play go, sounds like a hit. You want a deal? You know, you know, I'd been so persistent. I was like, because <laughs> every time I saw them, they go, "Oh, you're up from four seconds now. It's ten seconds." You know, I'm <laughs> like, "Okay, so now I'm 24, and I'm up to like 19 <laughs> seconds." I'm like, oh, "Good, great." You know, so I moved to New York when I was 23. I got a job as a superintendent of a, let's call it a slum. Okay. Down the Lower East Side. I would work from eight to 12 every day as a super, I'd mop the floors, take the garbage out. And then from 12 to five, I went, I had a little studio. I went in and I, and I wrote songs and then from five to six, I made cold calls. And then at night I played in a disco band. When I had free time and enough money, I would go into the studio and record. I was writing with this guy I met at a party named Larry Gottlieb and Larry Gottlieb was just the sweetest guy. And he since, um, is a Grammy winner. He wrote, believe me, baby, I lied for Trisha Yearwood. And we were nominated for Grammys. We wrote a song that was a number one record uh, called when she was my girl. Yeah. So I picked a good one when we were 25, actually. Clive Davis, who is a, a record mogul, he, he you know he discovered Bruce Springsteen, Janis Joplin, da da da. He heard our music and he offered us a publishing deal. And Larry was independently wealthy somehow from his bar mitzvah money, and he was like, <laughs> nah, "I don't want to sign a deal." I'm like, "Oh man, you know maybe we should sign a deal." He goes, "Nah, let him give him four songs, right?" So we give him four songs, and you know I had to keep working, right? He didn't have to work. Uh, Three years later, uh, a friend of ours named Alan Tepper was working for MCA Music, and he said, I'd like to sign you guys. So we signed to MCA Music. Within two years, we had this big hit record, number one, When She Was My Girl. It was all over the place. It was great. I was walking around the city, which is, you know, it's weird because at the same time, Stevie Nicks was recording a song of ours, and I was so excited about Stevie Nicks uh, doing our song. I just completely forgot about the other thing. Anyway, she stopped recording our song. This came out, it was a big hit. And now I have to tell you one of the great experiences of my life and I'm passing this along. Okay. So I'm 30 years old now. I have a number one record. I'm not really grasping the significance of it. Right. Cause I I didn't get like all of a sudden somebody didn't say here's $50,000. It was like I was making 300 a week as a composer. That was in advance. And, um, I was still making 300 a week when it was on the radio. It's number one, right? I get a call from the president of MCA music guy named, this guy's name is Jay Morgan Stern. Okay. He's a big deal in the business. And I used to date his daughter, Franny, when I was a teenager. So <laughs> I know this guy, I know this guy I called him uncle Jay, right? So he calls me up. <laughs> so this is, this is something for everybody because this is a, this is a real seminal moment for me. So I go up to the MCA, it's on sixth Avenue and in Manhattan, we're, we're all these like near CBS, just all these big buildings, very corporate stuff. I go into the lobby, you know, and I'm sitting there really nervous. And his secretary says, Jay, we'll see you now. Right. And I go walk through the corridors. I come onto this big, big, big office. So, I walk in, the carpeting is absolutely white, like pristine white. And he's sitting at the other end on this big mahogany desk. The sun is streaming through the windows. And he says, boy chick, it's good to see you. I'm so proud of you. I'm like, thank you, Jay. That is so kind of you. I couldn't have done it without you. So he says to me, would you like something to drink? Okay, I'm going to have the girl come in. She's going to bring you a cell phone. Like, right. Really? Okay. So this, this this young lady comes in with a tray and a glass, and she hands me the glass, and I go to grab the Perrier bottle, and Jay says, No, 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 no. She'll pour it for you. I'm like, really? I'm like, what? Where am I? I'm on the sofa. I'm definitely lower than he is, and I am drink Perrier out of this glass with ice. And <laughs> says to me, uh, Mark was so proud of you, you know, because, you know, let me ask you a question, Mark, six months ago, six months ago, what were you doing? I was writing songs, Jay, right, but nobody had ever heard of you, right? You never had a hit, right? You were a nobody, you were an idiot. <laughs> I'm like, where is this going? This... I go, yeah, I, yeah, Jay, I was an idiot. He goes, and now you got a number one record. And what? You're a genius. You're a genius. I said, thank you, Jay. And then he goes, but guess what? In six months, when that record's not a hit anymore, guess what? I said, what, Jay? goes, you're going to be an idiot. (laughs) So what I got out of that was that I was just going to skip being a genius part because I was always (laughs) bound to be an idiot, right? So no matter what (laughs) happened to me, no matter how successful I got, I was just gonna be an idiot. And <laughs> it really works. It really worked for me because you know, the more, the more successful you become, the more opportunities you have and people can go, you know, they meet me and they know I did certain stuff and I they go, Oh, he's such a nice boy. And I go, oh, I'm an idiot. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> and so the way I approached your job is how I approached everything. You know, like what do you want? Okay, I'll send you something. Do you like it? If you don't like it, I'll do it again. You know, you're the customer. And uh, I would say that is a, a key part of my success. The point of this is that when you're successful, the moment you're successful, it doesn't matter because you're not going to continually remain successful. So there's no point in getting really ex- like, oh, I'm a big guy. You know, I'm the Mac daddy because it's not going to last. So a lot of people like, they, they get successful and they become arrogant or something like that, right? And th- that doesn't help their career. The way to, to move forward always is with great humility. And so that, what, what that man taught me that day was when he said, in six months, you're gonna be an idiot. And that's basically how I approached everything after that. I never let, you know, a Grammy nomination or I got this award for best country music. I got a Lifetime Achievement Award for writing hands across America. I got a lot of Cleos and stuff like that for best music in advertising, and all the time I was just like, "Thank you,"
0: and keep going and go back and do what you do
1: exactly because that's exactly what you have to do. And most people don't do that, but what I found is, like, I produced Kenny Rogers. I produced a lot of really big stars. Yo Yo Ma, they're they're all the same. They're all they're all like that. Like you think you're with Kenny Rogers. He's the richest man in Hollywood. He's going to be an asshole. Instead. He's like, what can I do for you? Is that good? Is that right? Let's hear it again. So they're, they're quite deferential. I, I mentor kids. And what I tell the kids is that these guys understand their place in the social matrix. I think there are two things that make people successful from what what I have seen. One is lack of ego. They're like, it's about the work, whatever you think I'll do it again. No problem. Yep. And then the other thing is understanding your place in the social net matrix, meaning like I'm just the writer here, right? That's whoever I'm working for. That's my client. I'm not the guy who, who calls the shots. They call the shots.
0: Well, y- yes, and that's on your commercially created things. But
1: what you create out of your heart and your soul, you're your boss. Right, and and I've been looking at my life retrospectively. By 1986, I ha- had two top 10 records, uh, an ASCAP Award for Best Country Song, uh, a Grammy nomination for Best R&B Song, and uh, several advertising awards for Best Music and Advertising. I was 35. Amazing. And I, I, it was absolutely amazing. And I also wrote Hands Across America, which was uh, through Kenny Rogers and Lionel Richie. With, I guess you would call it uh, commercial success, those kinds of things, mm-hmm. I felt that I had honestly never written anything that I was very happy with personally that I felt resonated with my soul you know and I've been working with this guy named Joe Sarazano he's from you know the Hollers in 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 West Virginia some guy heard him play in a bar from Columbia Records when he was 18 and offered him a deal a record deal on Columbia Records and as happens in the record business only three percent of the artists on any label generate income for that label So that means that if you're an artist, you get get a record deal, you have a 97% chance of failing.
0: It's about the same odds as having a podcast with more than 1,000 downloads per episode, by the way.
1: Right, right. But, you know, you never know. You never know. (laughs) That guy just got paid a hundred million dollars, Joe Rogan or something like that.
0: And this episode, by the way, is going to put me on the map, man.
1: That's it. Exactly. Because <laughs> that, exactly. You got to think like that. Joe Serrazano uh, comes to New York to live, right? But he's a hillbilly. He's really like, you know, like Jed Clampett. And he does a Miller beer commercial. Miller's made the American way, and he makes thousands of dollars. And he becomes the number one guy in demand in New York City. And he's got all this stuff on the air. And he's making a ton of money. He has his own personal banker from Chase (laughs) Manhattan. In 1986, Kenny Rogers called because he wanted a song for Hands Across America. And at the time, I was writing, This Is Not Your Father's Oldsmobile. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. And I was not into into the concept of stars singing songs I see. To, for charity. I really objected to that. I thought of it as self-aggrandizement. I told Kenny that I wasn't crazy about uh, We Are the World. I mean, it's a nice thing, but you know, it it really it's 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 kind of a self-promotion by people who don't really need the money. Why don't they just give the money? Away? I mean, that's how I felt about it.
0: So, what, so what changed your mind? your mind? Okay,
1: so I was on the phone with Kenny. Rogers and Ken, K- and Ken Craig and Ken Craig put together we are the world and I said "Well, why don't you get those guys who wrote we are the world and sang all those you know all those stars they're great writers and he said we tried them, <laughs> he, them? he goes yeah you know we gave them copy points and they just go about writing their songs because they're artists they just like they missed all our copy points right Mark will you just do it do us a favor I was like really okay and you'd written for Kenny of course yeah, I've written for Kenny. I wrote for Pride is Back, for chrysler, which was a chrysler theme song, which was a single for Kenny Rogers, right? Mm-hmm. And um, And after that, I wrote several songs for him. And we were, you know, we were in touch, right? So I wrote Hands Across America with Larry Gottlieb and John Carney. And he's also Reeve Carney, who's the star of Hadestown. It's his dad.
0: Oh, man.
1: My wife, Jean, grew up with John. And I was writing Hands Across America, and I was stuck for lyrics. And the guy's a genius. He came up with this line, This sky, so serene, has felt the kiss of countless dreams. i was like, John. Okay. (laughs) So we wrote it. We sent it to Kenny. And Kenny called me back. I played it for Lionel Richie. Lionel said, the only thing wrong with this song is nothing's wrong with the song. I said, OK, so my experience of getting my songs recorded in general is that they don't come out the way that I hear them. They may become hits, but they, that's not how I really heard them. So I really want this song to to be as I heard it. I said, well, you know, I can let it go and and uh, and you can get whoever you want to sing it, but nobody sang it as well as Joe Sarasano. So it Joe and Sandy Farina, another great singer. So. That became the theme song, and those were the artists who did it. But after that, I felt like I hadn't written a single song that resonated with me. The way House of the Rising Sun, Mr. Tambourine Man, Take It Easy, any of early, you know, the early Dylan songs that Joni Mitchell did. So I, I know Joe had the same sensibility as I did, and I said, you want to write songs that are meaningful to us we're we're just going to go and do this out of love you know and we spent four hours every monday and we did this for four years the end of two years we came up with a song called healing hand which you know
0: yes i do
1: i love that song And Once we came up with that song, I felt the burden lift, and we did this project, and we took it into the studio and recorded it. A lot of very successful studio musicians were on it. And so I felt after that, I felt I felt artistically redeemed. And I continue to work on this project. I consider it my legacy. And I just finished up five songs with Joe, and we're gonna get them mastered, and I will put them out and whatever happens happens but it's um you know it's it's something that 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 i was able to do because i had the good fortune of of having enough success to just go ahead and afford to do this. Mm-hmm. i think that the people who are the most successful are the ones who are able to just go full steam ahead and show up on the job do 100 mm-hmm. they, percent. they tend to exceed expectations like you know, I've been in a studio with, say, Kenny Rogers or Michael Bolton or somebody like that. They just, they just kill it. They just, you know, they show up on time. They do it a hundred percent, I think that's what's required. So, you know, as you know, you'll come across a lot of people with talent, but very few people have the ability to sustain or have the comportment to, <clears throat> to turn it into a career yeah. for whatever, whatever reason.
0: Mark you did an interview with NPR a few years back and and you talked a lot about your book Humpty Dumpty was pushed really really cool novel and in that you actually had said that you'd stopped writing music after 9 eleven what happened that got you back into into music again
1: yeah after 9 eleven I wrote one song called hole in the Sky mm-hmm. and that was That was put out on three separate albums.
0: That was covered by three different people? Well, what what
1: happened is the song came out on an album that was made by advertising creatives. And then the police and firemen had their own album of guys who worked who were firemen and policemen who wrote songs. But they liked this song and they put it out on Mm. their album. Mm -hmm. I felt really honored by that hole in the sky. But um, Gene and I did a lot of volunteer work. We lived near the uh, the police headquarters on twenty twenty mm-hmm. first Street, and I just lost my enthusiasm for for uh, for writing, and I just felt like there were other things that I could be doing. I think the the uh, the suddenness with which nine eleven happened made a lot of people in New York reevaluate how they were living their lives, and time sort of superseded money. It was like, do I want to keep working and make money, or do I want to take this time? and have an experience and mm. so we we stopped working and we traveled around the world for four years uh, That's
0: you ended up in Nicaragua
1: yeah yeah we we, we were uh, wound up in Nicaragua and the, the way that Humpty came about is I was writing these crazy crazy travel logs and uh, you probably got some and <laughs> anyway we, we were in New York at, at a time during those four years and my cousin, Ken Kalfas, is a, an author. He is a Penn Faulkner Award winner. He's a, a great author, and his wife is a Pulitzer Prize winner.
0: Wow, uh, nice In, marriage.
1: Inga Saffron, right. So <laughs> we're sitting around. It's it's Pesach, you know. And the guy Passover. says, you uh, mm-hmm. right, Passover. And he says to me, Mark, he says, I love your travel lot if you got to write a book. I'm like, Ken Cal-, you Because know, he, he reviews for The Times as well. I was like, really? Yeah. <laughs> And Inga said, "Yeah, Mark, you just got to write a book." So I spent five years, and I wrote a *Humpty Dumpty Was Pushed*, which was based on experience we had in the '90s. We were making so much money, we really didn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And some guy they
0: have, by the way, it, it
1: was really great, right? <laughs> uh, but we wanted to do something, you know, but we, you know, we wanted to do something constructive and fun, and and something that might be profitable. And I had in 1981 and '82 been making hip-hop records for Corey Robbins at Profile Records, Run DMC, you know, like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so there was a guy, we, Gene and I met, who wanted to start a hip-hop label, and he brought this artist of his up to our office. And I was blown away, and he said, well, can you finance a hip-hop label? And we financed a hip-hop label. We was down with Wu-Tang, they'd come up to our office and hang out, everybody, everybody, Noriega, all these gangs the guys would come up and hang out with us and we spent three years and we lost four hundred thousand (laughs) dollars no and so you had
0: fun doing it
1: right right so when ken said you should write a book i said well what do you write about he goes well you write about what you know and so i said well i know i know the hip hip hop (laughs) and i met some really crazy people so i wrote this book called humpty dumpty was pushed based on the hip hop experiences and I, it's been optioned for film, a TV, five different times. But I never wrote the screenplay. But right now, a friend of mine produces big TV shows. And he <laughs> read the book. And he said, uh, I think you should write a screenplay for a film. And I, was, and I just finished yesterday. Wow. So I'm going to send it out to him. And hopefully he'll like it. So, um, you know, Humpty continues. Humpty continues. Humpty Dumpty is pushing.
0: That's awesome.
1: And uh, what I'm hoping is, you know, it comes out and I'll sell lots of books.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, I I think that anyone who can go from talking about Pesach to hip hop,
1: (laughs) Soul Brother,
0: paragraph.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, I got to tell you something. This cracked me up, but. Uh, Gina and I were watching public television. They were doing a pitch and they had uh, greats, the greatest soul songs of uh-huh. the 70s.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, and you can buy, the, buy a 60, like a Like a
0: K-Tel kind of. Uh... Yeah,
1: yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and my song when she was my girl was on it. And I was like, <laughs> along with other stuff that I just love, like if you don't know me by now, like a lo- yeah. lot of stuff like that. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, Gene, I might officially be a soul man. <laughs> so we, we, gave, we contributed and we got a box set. and It's one of my most prized possessions.
0: It's right? excellent.
1: Oh, man. I'm telling you. No, life is good. I was somewhere and, and I heard somebody say to somebody else, hey, how's it going? And the guy went, I'm living the dream. And I was like, that's it, man. I'm living the dream.
0: Yeah. yeah, well, you know what you've you've really helped a lot of people make make dreams happen too. I mean, I don't mean to be corny about it, but when you lived in Nicaragua, you did a lot of fundraising to dig wells.
1: right. right
0: areas, you you know, you've really sort of fostered a lot of musicians. And, you know, you joke about losing money over the years for trying to do the hip hop label. But, you know, you've mentored a lot of musicians and and brought people along the way. So you've helped people live their dream, too, I think.
1: Yeah, I think it's mutual. I think it's really mutual. I feel incredibly blessed. I mean, I Mark Cohn came up to the office one day. I
0: love Mark Cohn. Right.
1: So he came over one day because we were close. <laughs> and he said, hey, I got this record deal on Atlantic Records. You want to hear the song.
0: They mm-hmm.
1: sat down at the piano. And he played me walking to Memphis. And I knew Doug Morris, who was the, the head of Atlantic Records, because he had signed me as an artist. And I, I called him up. I said, Doug, the, I just heard the most amazing thing in the world. He goes, what is it? Walking to Memphis by Mark Cohn. So I had that experience. I knew Lisa Loeb. She played uh-huh. Stay. Michael Bolton came up to the office to play a stock of the Bay because we were close with him. yeah, and so you know, it, it, it's just not it's just nice. It's nice to be part of a community and, you know, feel like you want the best for everybody,
0: yeah, yeah. well, I mean, some of the some of your other influential things are giving Marie Osmond the most played song of her career, right?
1: <laughs> right. That's very <laughs> nice. That's nice. I still. So I see her on Weight Watcher commercials, and I'm like, <laughs> <say to laughs> you know, right, when you look like that, you don't have to really sing. She did a great job, but you know, I mean, let's...
0: And now you're um, a step granddad?
1: That's right. Our daughter, Hardy, has a a son named Xavier, and they, Hardy and Chris and Xavier all got COVID. And they've, no! recovered, they've subsequently recovered, but they've been tested and they have antibodies. And, oh my... Um,
0: Well, we should explain that one because this is one of my favorite stories. As I mentioned, you're my stepbrother, and you have a second wife and she has two daughters. And I got to know your stepdaughter, Hardy, pretty well. She did a little work with me with Moss Peel Green back in the day. And she's really into sustainability also. Uh, But Hardy and I have a step-step thing. So she's actually my step-step niece. And I guess that makes her son Xavier my great, great step, step, step step nephew.
1: nephew. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, she loves you. She loves you.
0: Back at you and her. So, any other like moments when you know you're just being a regular old idiot, and <laughs> but you think back on the moments of genius that you had. What jumps out at you?
1: Yeah, there is one story, one story that is unbelievable. You're, we talked about, I wrote Prize back, the Chrysler used. Yes. For, and I wrote it with a guy named Alan Mond and Larry Gottlieb. Anyway, so Alan Mond was a big executive at a, an agency. And he calls me up, he and his partner, and they talk like madmen. Mock. We, we were asked to, to be the to, to entertainment of Pride Entertainment for this ball, would you write a song for the ball? And I wrote the song, and Mark Cohn came in and sang it, and they said, well, you know, we'd like you to play the song for the person who is the honoree, right? So I was like, great, you know? They said, you have a boombox. I go, yeah, I have a boombox. He goes, bring it up to the Plaza Athene at 10 o'clock Monday morning, and we'll introduce you to the person who's going to,
0: and, the, and you had no idea. I, I
1: had no idea who she was, right? No, who it was. So, okay. So I go to the Plaza Athene. It's a boutique hotel for like the super duper wealthy. That's on 67th Street. And I go up to the room and this woman opens the door and she says, hi, my name's Sherry Lansing. Okay. I'm like, oh, Sherry Lansing. Aren't you the president of Paramount Pictures? Didn't you produce Forrest Gump? I didn't say that. I just was like, what the hell is happening here? I got to smack myself in the head. Right. So it's like I go in the room and my two guys are there, you know, the guys who got me involved. Uh-huh. And so they, they, you know, cause they're ad guys They go Sherry Mark here wrote this song. Perhaps, you know, hands across America. Mark wrote that song and other songs, which you." I'm like, Oh my God, this poor woman, you know, you and I have, know people who passed away from cancer we know how horrible it is and there's probably a connection there between someone she loved dying of cancer and her being the American Cancer Society woman of the year that's what this was for okay so okay so we're sitting at the table and they say can you play it for her mock and I go (laughs) okay and I play it for her and she starts crying hysterically hysterically and when the song is over, she's in tears. And, and one of the guys puts his arm on, under my leg, under the table. And he, I swear to God, he goes, boy, chick, you did good. So she's kind of gains her composure. And then they say this, I just couldn't believe it. Want to hear it again, Sherry? My like, hands are up in the air. No, 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 they, they insist. She, and she's like a wet noodle, you know? And, and I leave, I leave. I thank, you know, Sherry, thank you. Great, great, great. All right, so then I get back to my office and I get this call from them. They go, Mark, she really liked this song. Do you think you can get your friend Kenny Rogers to do a video of the song and we'll play it at the Waldorf Astoria at this event, at the American Cancer Society? Jean calls up Kenny. She's very persuasive. So you do a video of this, you know, I go to Nashville, go down and produce him. We do the video now we she invites us to the waldorf astoria for this night right and there's like you know a thousand people in the grand ballroom and the chairman of the board of cartier gets on stage he goes tonight we have a special special song and we'd like to thank the person who wrote it mark Blatt. would you stand up and because nobody does that right in award ceremonies usually it's the record company picks it up the you know the advertising so I'm sitting there, and I'm looking around for this guy, Mark Ladd, <laughs> Honestly, and Gene says to me, "Stand up, stand up." I was like, oh. And then Sherry does a speech, and then there's like all these stars: Bette Midler, Danny DeVito, one after another. You name them, all of them. Then, then the dinner's being served, and I said, "Well, I think I should go congratulate Sherry, you know, for the for the night." I go over to him and I say, "Sherry." the congratulations and she says oh mark thank you so much have you met my escort i'm like "Hmm, this is is weird right uh no i don't believe i have and she says henry kissinger this is mark (laughs)
0: and
1: he says to me you must be very proud young man (laughs) and This is where it gets interesting, and you might want this podcast to go a little longer because it's really interesting. And all I can think of when he says, congratulations, young man, is a line from a Joseph Heller book called Good as Gold. Uh Henry Kissinger is asked, how come you have a Jewish accent? And he says, it's not a Jewish accent, it's a German accent. Right? That's what Henry Kissinger says. Okay. Now, as a... You know, I, I found that like a little weird, and 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 so I was very hesitant, and also grew up during the Vietnam War, and he was one of the key architects, so it was a very uncomfortable feeling for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, fast forward eight years. Okay, I'm in the Hamptons, at a restaurant, with my wife, and my sister-in-law Lynn Neary, who is a broadcaster on NPR, mm-hmm. and is in charge of books, and we're sitting at a table in this restaurant. And this guy walks in, he's about, um, probably 75, close to 80. And my heart starts beating. I don't know who he is. I have no idea. Why am I feeling like this? Right. I was just overwhelmed with love. So I said to Lynn, you know, who is that guy? And she says, it's Joseph Heller. Oh, this is unbelievable. Right. So I say to Lynn, I got to talk to him. I got to talk to him. And Len says to me, I don't think you want to talk to him. He's a misanthrope. He's known for being a misanthrope. But I'm like, I got to talk to him, right? So there's a moment where he's alone. I go up to him and I say, Joseph Heller, Mark Black. And he opens up his arms and he smiles and he goes, Mark Blatt, What can I do you for? And we oh. kibitz for like 15 minutes about Henry Kissinger. Yeah. And then when he was leaving, he came over to our table and he put his arm around me and he says to my (laughs) father-in-law, Mark Blatt, I love that kid. (laughs) (laughs) That's the story.
0: It's a good one. (laughs) I love it. I love your story.
1: (laughs) That's it. That was like the most unbelievable thing. You know, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. It was really, it was great. It was great. Well
0: it's been a good road mark okay,
1: yes, yes
0: may it continue for many many miles to go yeah
1: you too you too you look you. fabulous we you. love your podcasts,
0: mark Flatt, thank you for joining me it's quite a living
1: it's quite a life
0: well i really want to thank you for listening for sharing for subscribing to hopefully even rating this podcast and telling your friends because after all this is just about talking with friends so thank you for being in my expanding circle of friends and the truth is whether you're living quite the living we're all really lucky to be living quite the life